many lives will be lost to them are hunger easy It's way bigger than the pain that I place on the CD If I told you all the truth, would you really believe me? It's the more hunger easy so Hiro, I'm happy happy to have you here and I would like to introduce you. Uh, so as an inter interdisciplinary artist and activist, uh, you are focusing on restoring and restoring your, your relationship with the earth and with each other. Uh, you are the director of the climate justice documentary, Radical Friends, and you have worked on audiovisual shorts for fossil free culture, Code Road, Shell, Must Fall, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace. So that's a lot. So you're quite <laughs> already well known, I can imagine. Uh, you also created uh, and produced installations for the exposition People Powered Movement versus Shell in 2020. And you are also the co-founder of the Climate Liberation Block and of course mm -hmm. RLS. Uh, and your work currently <laughs> exists uh, of training, movements, organizing, public speaking and writing. Uh, so, so happy to have you here and I'm blessed uh, to be here as your host. So you, of course, uh, you have um, created this amazing team, the climate um, the climate uh, reparations. So um, there are one thing that I really love is that this is now available. So, so happy to have that. So um, you are questioning yourself, how do we articulate demands that remedy colonial climate disruptions and enables just transition processes? So that's like one of the questions I have. So it's a very nice uh, starting point. And uh, you will start this session with some historical perspectives on reparations and a call for historical culprits of climate disruption to pay its climate debt. Uh, you will also reflect on justice making and how different pillars of justice making are situated, uh, who has agency and which processes and focus belong to each strand. And you will also provide some examples of reparation justice struggles uh, and where they stand now. And uh, this is what I love. We will together close with imagining restorative justice together. So thank you so much for having this here. Um, so please go ahead and uh, make us very proud as Arles. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm so happy um, to see, well, not see you, but see your presence joining from um, Germany, Belgium, Mexico, and different places in the Netherlands. It's really lovely to have you here um, to talk about such an important um, topic and timely topic of climate justice and reparations. So um, I will start by sharing my screen and going through a slide show, but please know that during this time that I'm talking already, you can ask questions in the chat that will be super helpful for uh, when the introduction is done, because we like to have as much uh, interaction as possible. So that would only make it uh, more exciting, your questions. Um, so I will start sharing now. Here, have a presentation. So I always like to I, I talk a lot about climate justice and um, I'm starting to talk about reparations. And I like to start with the fact that even though we're talking about such a positive thing of collective healing and restoring from harm, we're still gonna be addressing harm. So uh, I want to give a trigger warning uh, for you know, dealing with explicit content such as ecocide and genocide, which is super heavy. So I really want to invite you when emotions occur, whether it's sadness, anger, um, just the feeling of overwhelm to really honor that emotional intelligence and do what you need to do to be okay. Whether that is um, just really putting your hand on your tummy and taking some really deep breaths to feel what you need to feel, or um, just taking a step back and, and have a drink and, and you know just do what you need to do. 
So um, just inviting you to, to have feelings. And also if you don't have feelings, uh, let's always question ourselves, like how are we socialized to not have feelings when we're dealing with such tragic um, uh, assault on life? Okay, let's dive in. Uh, yes, click. So uh, climate justice and reparation. Let's start with the frame of looking at the climate crisis, because oftentimes in white stream climate discourse, we talk about the climate crisis as if the climate is the crisis instead of the politics um, that we're having a political crisis, a colonial political crisis, which is a historical crisis. So I, I do have talks that dive into this deeper, but for today's uh, purpose, I just want to iterate that when I talk about reparations and climate justice, I treat the climate crisis as a colonial crisis. Um, so I don't just look at the symptoms of CO2, which is the most visible part, but I look at like, how do we experience this uh, nature so far? We have a distorted knowledge. We see that historically the Western knowledge production has uh, done three things. One, it has externalized nature. It has made space flat and time linear. So all of these three things, nature as external, uh, time as linear and space as flat, um, is a distortion through which we don't really understand the climate crisis. Um, if we look at climate disruption from a col colonial lens, we see that colonization, white supremacy, male supremacy, human supremacy are root causes of um, politics of mass destruction, of scorching earth, of uh, decimating populations, both human and non-human. Um, so for this, I would add, um, really uh, ad advise to watch um, Exterminate All the Brutes, a recent documentary series um, that really goes into histories. And I do really um, advise this documentary series because it doesn't just talk about the history in the US but also in other continents quite holistically. Um, so that's the historical note, uh, but beyond the root causes, the knowledge production and the symptoms, there's the often forgotten dimensions of erasure that which we are made to forget appropriation of earth and peoples and cultures and um, the need for reparations is somewhere there in the shadow the, the, actually the path of uh, restoring. So um, this is our entry point. It's the entry point of a historical understanding that uh, these emissions have been made not just by humanity, <laughs> but by particular countries and also looking at the map of the world that not so long ago, actually in a time when emissions were rising and rising and we already knew that climate change was happening, um, uh, Europe pretty much ruled the, 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 the land base of uh, much of the earth. And if you look at the right, you see these emissions in 1751 to uh, 2018, you see the predominant um, proportion of emissions being under Europe. And especially if we know that uh, the link between uh, emissions, CO2 emissions and climate was already made in 1896, we know that there's been uh, a lot of time lost by uh, politics that just simply does is not willing to stop uh, um, scorching earth to um, maximize powers of a few and maximize capital accumulation of a few. So now, uh, if this is the way we understand climate and this political crisis, then uh, how do we address it through a lens of climate justice? So uh, some of the ways that we've seen popular struggle in uh, the domain of UN and legal terms or um, uh, soft um, legal measures is um, the first entry in uh, 1992, ecological debt. So this is really in uh, Brazil, uh, the global south, 
really understanding from a long history of fighting of colonization that when we have an earth summit, we're not just talking about um, um, saving futures, we're talking about restoring the past. And due to this movement, due to interventions, already since 1992 in uh, the UN framework, there is uh, an article CBDR, which is common but differentiated responsibilities. So it is clear that um, emissions need to be reduced, but not all nations uh, have the same uh, uh, have the same responsibilities because of historical uh, track record. Um, this fight has been long, uh, a 500 year struggle for um, land defending, um, but in the domain of climate litigation and climate justice, the, the rich countries of Europe, they know very much that they, they don't want any of these articles in there because they know uh, fights are gonna be fought in, in courtrooms and everything. So you must imagine that in, in these UN summits, like really one sentence um, can be loopholed in, in like just twitching one comma or one word in which it will have less legal standing. So it's a fierce struggle that uh, grassroots are, uh, are leading. In 2009 was another important breakthrough uh, when uh, Bolivia, uh, both in Copenhagen uh, in Bonn and in Cochabamba proposed um, yeah, the framework of talking about climate debt, that uh, actually um, Europe and US need to pay their climate debt. So we're not asking for aid, you just need to uh, pay up. And pay up is not just um, money, it's also adaptation and mitigation for a transfer of technology, um, clearing atmospheric space uh, so others can use it, um, like doing away with patents, uh, sharing, um, uh, yeah, certain uh, uh, knowledge that is kind of, uh, what do you call it, fenced uh, through patents. And um, this was actually in a coalition with uh, Global South countries. So uh, a, a fierce voice for climate debt reparations was Lady Nakbil from Philippines. You had um, um, the, the NGOs already joining in uh, of, uh, whatchamacallit, the eight, Action 8 and James Hansen, uh, NASA uh, dude, he was actually uh, a person who quantified this climate debt for uh, the coalition. So he played a role in this as well. Recently, we see the conversation more had uh, in terms of loss and damages. And here it's really important to understand that climate change is not something for saving the future, but really looking at the loss and damages that has already been made in the past century and before. Uh-oh. Okay, moving on to reparations. Um, so people often think with reparations uh, in terms of financial compensation. Um, but here, uh, I would actually advise people to watch the full talk by Esther Sose, an introduction to reparations. I'm also very excited to say that uh, Esther Sose, I think will be with us soon in a decolonial learning session. So she will talk about um, her amazing expertise as a reparationist uh, more. Um, but for now, suffice it to say, uh, we have to think uh, of, of reparations in a wholesome, holistic way where there's both restitution, uh, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantee of non-repetition. So below you see what that really means in legal terms, but um, especially guarantees of non-repetition means we will shut down mines <laughs> because you're not allowed to pollute again, or we will have to do dam removal of rivers. Um, and which uh, also this should be led by people of indigenous nations if it's on their land so they can um, do uh, restorative uh, land management and have decision power in all of these processes. Um, satisfaction is often associated with like 
renaming street names or curriculum. Um, but yeah, recently there's been uh, burning, um, there's been a lot of dead bodies found in Canada in, by churches of uh, stolen children. And um, there's been some churches that were burned down. And I think actually, when we talk about climate justice, certain institutions, when you take them down, that's also part of satisfaction of actually making sure that um, institutional harms that have uh, been over the centuries are not allowed to persist. Um, well, that's just my personal note. Um, so reparations is nothing new. Um, now we have a lot of talk of reparations. Some of you may have heard about the US who is in HR 40. We'll talk about that a little bit more later for colonial reparations or decolonial reparations, as you'd say, because in the beginning reparations was mostly associated with actually colonial reparations where the colonists were being um, uh, the receivers of so-called lost, uh, lost profit when slavery was formally ended. So one of the most notable reparations historically is the one that Haiti, uh, Haiti had to pay uh, after they liberated themselves. Um, so after a fierce struggle, uh, shaking off French occupation, appropriation of their, um, their lives, their work, um, um, with uh, 200,000 Haitian life lost, um, they were charged under threat of a lot of military force to pay 90 million uh, uh, golden francs to France. And so this held them in a stranglehold for over a hundred years. I think it took them 122 years to pay off reparations. Um, the same we also see with Indonesia. Um, instead of Indonesia getting uh, uh, reparations for all the suffering they've been through, all the lost lives, all the stolen oil and other goods, um, they were um, made to pay and their payments went on till 2002 to the Netherlands. Um, similarly, we should think of Shell. Shell in the 60s when they left Indonesia because of anti-Dutch sentiments and struggle, um, they sold their uh, exploration rights of Indonesian oil for 110 million. Um, so Indonesians had to pay for the right to mine their own oil. That's the colonial logic. So that's why it's really necessary we get some decolonial reparations. Um, so to start with Haiti, they actually, in 2004, Aristide, um, the president at the time, he um, charged France to pay up uh, 21 billion, uh, which is what their, um, what their debt uh, amounted to, that they had already paid France in modern days. Not long after, there was a military coup uh, backed by the US, and he was disposed of. Um, so yeah, reparation struggle is not always um, um, an easy uh, struggle to fight. Uh, on the other hand, there's a long track record of war reparations. So there's World War I, the, the uh, very well-known Treaty of Versailles, where Germany um, uh, was literally marked for causing loss and damages in the treaty. So it's the same uh, terminology that we use in climate justice. Um, and uh, also notably, they had to do a lot of their payment, not just in money, but in shipments of sheep and cows and ships. Um, so there's like 120,000 sheep they had to pay to France and like so many uh, lost ships that they had to go had to go to Britain. Um, so here you also see that it's not just about, and that could be restitution because so many ships were lost or um, World War II. Uh, here, the Netherlands also received reparations for forced labor by Japan on the Burma railway tracks. So here you see that stolen labor, uh, kind of slave labor by the Dutch, um, uh, they got reparations for it. But on the other hand, in Indonesia, 
they demanded reparations from uh, the oppressed people. So it's very uh, double standards. Um, and also this goes back to recent days, uh, just in 2019, the Dutch uh, train uh, corporation, the NS, the Dutch um, train railway, um, came through uh, with a measure of paying up so many million um, because they organized the trains to go to concentration camps in Germany for payment uh, by Nazis. Uh, of course, uh, we often see with reparations going wrong that they don't really care about um, the victims, so they will only compensate one group and create new suffering. So in the case of the Dutch railway, they only compensated Jewish people and in the end, Cynthia Roma, uh, who fought for it, um, but all the people from the resistance or um, uh, I think also not ha uh, handicapped people who were uh, transported, uh, uh, they were all not part of this deal. Um, so it's very divisive. Uh, recently, just in 2021, we've seen Germany apologize for colonial uh, genocide in Namibia. Uh, also here, uh, a blunder was that they apologized to the Namib Namibian state, whereas the genocide really took place over particular indigenous uh, tribes, the, the Namas and the Hereros, and they weren't apologized to. And so this was very painful. And also the 1 billion that they made available, they're attached to strings and, and ways that, that can be spent. Um, so these are all learnings. When we are fighting for our reparations, we want decision power um, in the communities at the, the people who are most suffering the loss and damages. Um, Another exciting reparation struggle is HR 40 bill in the US, a whole reparation plan. Um, there's more talks about that online, so I'm not gonna go into it here, but I do wanna name it as it's very um, uh, current. And tomorrow, the 1st of July, we will have Katikoti. Um, so it's the, the discarding of the chains um, celebration on the 1st of July here in the Netherlands. Um, and there are debates about Amsterdam making apologies for their uh, slavery, um, uh, their action in slavery. And they have commissioned a huge um, or quite a big book uh, about their role in slavery. So this can be f f part of a reparation process as well, like actually commissioning um, decolonial thinkers and researchers to, to uh, publish a book and make that a recognition in society, but then holding debates that say, should we apologize with a question mark is of course also an incredible insult um, after you've just funded this, this research and it's very condemning of the direct ties of Amsterdam and their governors in slavery. Okay. Um, of course, I am talking here tonight, but Esther also is really good in naming the fact that this is an old struggle for reparations and there are many people, many ancestors that are here with us. So any victory that we will make in our lifetime, um, we will um, make many ancestors proud who've given their life for restorative justice. Um, and these are some of the people that uh, also helped me in my learning uh, recently listening to talks and I really recommend also um, to check out their work. Um, I will do a few words now about justice as we often chant as climate activists, what do we want? Climate justice, when do we want it? Now. But when you ask people, what does justice really mean or climate justice really mean? The answers tend to be very fuzzy, something about disproportionate harm and something about global south and me. Um, so I wanna um, pay some credit to Wangui Wakamonji, a dear friend of mine who definitely um, helped me thinking through justice practices, uh, both within and without outside of the court. Uh, she is a re regeneration practitioner from Kenya. 
And so the following two, three slides, uh, thinking through what do we mean when we are fighting for justice to begin with, are um, thanks to her. So it's about kind of unpacking different strands of justice making. So the form that we are most familiar with in our Western societies are punitive justice, um, where you um, end up with a verdict that is a punishment for the offender if they're found guilty. Um, another thing that we know is distributive justice, which is the state maybe intervening and doing welfare programs or if they've found, been found guilty of something that there's a fine or, yeah, that's actually punitive as well. Uh, but distribution is like um, helping it, helping some measures to help the disenfranchised without really dealing with the power <laughs> to begin with. So it's helping a little bit, but not really changing the system. Restorative justice focuses not uh, on the offender or the victim, but it focuses on relationship. And so this is a really rich realm that is not really practiced in Western uh, societies. Um, you find it in many indigenous cultures uh, that um, in, in indigenous courts as well, that you have peacemaking circles or kind of mediation in which the community plays an important role. And then there's generative justice, which is, um, kind of preventive. And uh, an example that I've learned about is actually thinking as generative justice as the milpa, uh, which is a way of farming in, um, in Mexico, where you combine squash and beans and corn, and they each help like three sisters uh, make a circle. And so it generates life instead of, um, and combining generative justice and restorative justice you get regenerative justice. And this is a thing that Western society doesn't really know yet. <laughs> um, so here you see punitive justice is mostly focused in state and nations, the same for distributive justice. But restorative justice goes into community and generative justice is the combination of all of ecology and community together. So if we think about these different strands, we can think about punitive justice to um, arrest the CEO of Shell or BP. Um, we can think about distributive justice in like assuring that there's like 10,000 green jobs in uh, Nigeria of uh, technology transfer uh, of when they've been affected and screwed over by Shell for forever. Um, restorative justice, we can think about uh, truth and reconciliation um, concerning genocide, ecocide, and the way those um, um, are interfacing. Um, generative justice is really about um, um, creating more, more relation, more life, more health um, uh, in general. <coughs> so the, the point I wanna make here is that not all justice takes uh, place in court because court is um, state run and we can't really um, rely on the state to do our healing. We can remedy some of the incredible wrongs that need to be happening on state and interstate level. Um, but in terms of our healing, we will have to do that in community. And an important example I would like to um, remember here is when veterans of the military um, in the US came to Standing Rock to be a human shield against police violence um, when police was sent to um, violate um, the indigenous uh, um, land defenders or water protectors. And uh, they came there not just in solidarity, but also uh, apologizing for the incredible harms that the military of the United States uh, has done and is doing. And so this was a relationship building um, practice. And so it's not that, you know, everything is swept under the carpet and things are gone, but this is relationship building in practice and solidarity.
Also, peacemaking in practice, there's a beautiful website, Indigenous Peacemaking Initiative, where I found some beautiful resources on justice making. So I'm always running over time, um, going through. Um, You're good, you're still good. <laughs> cool. Uh, focus on dealing with collective post-catastrophic memory. So this is a book, Legacy, um, that focuses on that reparative justice more from a community level. Um, also thinking through how do we bring back circular ways of being, circular ways of knowing, circular ways of relating. These are some examples of, um, it should say in the picture. Yeah, exactly. I do want to be specific because too often we say general indigenous knowledge and it's they're rooted in particular cultures. Um, so uh, this is from Canada uh, and uh, yeah, I can really recommend it. Also, um, beyond the state level and the community level, there's of course the institutional level. And so if we look at example, green organizations like big NGOs, they have been part of the problem as well of, um, of um, being in, in practice with uh, colonial conservation. And so here, uh, this book of decolonizing wealth, uh, which is really about decolonizing the, uh, the sector of, of uh, funding, um, what's it called it, philanthropy, um, is a really good book with practical know-how and funders, uh, foundations have actually put this into practice to uh, not only rethink, but redo the ways of funding. Um, and so if you're working in a in an NGO or in a in, in an organization in the green sector, I would really recommend this book um, for starting to do reparations on the institutional level. Sorry, trigger warning. Uh, we are um, looking now at a few examples in which uh, reparation struggles are actually alive today, in which eco-genocide is, um, is inter intertwined. Um, so quite notably, the Vietnam War and Agent Orange has decimated both uh, forest um, people and next generations. So, I will read a little bit here. So this is an example of scorching earth politics uh, of warfare. So from 1961 to 1971, the US dropped more than 75 million liters of Agent Orange and other herbicides over Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos in what was then called Operation Ranch Hand in a scorched earth policy to strip the terrain of foliage and food supplies in an effort to defeat um, the resistance. During the 10 years of this operation, more than 2 million hectares of forest and 200,000 hectares of crops were heavily damaged or destroyed. In 2010, um, the US Department of Veterans Affairs uh, had to pay up 16.2 billion in compensation for Vietnam veterans, so the US soldiers who fought there. But meanwhile, people in Vietnam <laughs> are not being compensated, not even for their um, healthcare, uh, like quite basic um, restitution, not even reparations. And so there are documentaries about this as well. Um, the the Toxics sometimes affected the people, but you don't see deformities. But then they got children. And um, yeah, there are five very typical uh, ways that the limbs, uh, eyesight, um, and different ways of distorting the body um, is now affecting. Uh, I've got the numbers, I think, in the next one. Affected by Agent Orange, 3 million people. 150,000 children with birth defects that are um, shown to be related to Agent Orange in Vietnam alone. So there is the call for reparations. Uh, this fight has been ever since the Vietnam War, but since uh, the case was won for uh, US military veterans, now they stand a better chance to actually get reparations. Um, 
So many times people think of the environmental movement from the Western side, starting with Rachel Carson, who was also talking about Agent Orange, but then skip the part of, do we ever repair that harm? Do we even hold militaries accountable for such uh, incredible uh, crimes? So in recent years in Europe, there's been a uh, very powerful campaign. You have um, five more minutes or so, yeah? Yeah, a very powerful campaign, uh, Stop the Mangamizi. So that's why we started today's session with the song from Akala uh, Mangamizi. Mangamizi is a Swahili word, uh, meaning uh, the African uh, Holocaust, the genocide, ecocide. And they really make the connection about stripping life and, and land and earth um, uh, of the African continent. Another important uh, reparation struggle ongoing is in the Caribbean, CARICUM. Uh, and while this is mostly articulated for colonial harm on a human level, the Caribbean really has a fight when it comes to environmental climate justice because many of these islands are now uh, increasingly experiencing hurricanes and other climate disasters as well as rising sea levels, uh, salination, so that's making salty water and water crisis, um, cre creating ecological um, disasters that are multi-billion also in, in per event. I hate to quantify disasters in economic terms, but this is um, just to give an indication of the size of havoc that they um, create. I've been told this is not a nice lady, <laughs> but this is uh, just to show that even in mainstream like The Guardian, um, um, UN human rights chief calls for reparations to make amends for slavery. So these conversations that, you know, the struggle that's been going on for centuries is picking up speed um, that it is being discussed in quite uh, big, big platforms like the UN, or even Biden made some comments about supporting reparations in the US. So these are not exactly revolutionaries. Finally, I think there's a case to be made for connecting the struggle in the US of uh, reparations for racial zoning with mobility justice. This is a huge case. Um, so recently racial zoning reparations have been made in Evanston in the US. And here they're not waiting for reparations to be made for the colonial era, but they're looking at a very more recent time between 1990 and 1919 and 1969. So this is more recent. And the way that uh, black people in the North in Evanston were only uh, racially zoned um, to be in neighborhoods that were disinvested in, disenfranchised, where there was no school allowed, no hospital, no playground, uh, over-policing. And still today you see the ramifications that the, the lives of black people in the city are on average 13 years shorter than the lives of uh, white people in this town. So, the reparation program consists of uh, a tax, taxation, or a sale taxation over cannabis. Um, and this is really beautiful that it refers to also a historical harm that cannabis has been used to jail a lot of black people disproportionately. And now that cannabis is legalized, mostly white people are making money on it. So to tax that, and use it for <laughs> reparations in housing of black citizens of the city is um, a beautiful initiative that, that shows historical remembrance. So I haven't thought this through all the way, but I think that racial zoning is really um, focused on the way that we are spatially uh, harmed by colonialism and um, mobility justice and the way that bordering, not just in neighborhoods or cities, happens on nation state level, level in colonialism and is now increasingly um, and a challenge for people who are losing home, uh, like islands that are disappearing. Um, I hope we can do some solidarity around that and, and make the connections between um, 
the bordering in cities or gerrymandering and the bordering in, in uh, nation states. This is from West Papua. Um, um, and also already in 2019, three little islands disappeared. They were not populated, but this is no longer in the future. This is happening now. And speaking from the Dutch experience, Bonaire, St. Marta, they're all um, incredibly um, harmed by climate justice or, uh, or by climate disasters already, uh, facing storms, uh, salinated water, uh, coral reef loss. Uh, of course, they're made dependent on tourism. Um, there's a whole chain of events and chain of polit political dependence that is creating massive harm. So here is also a case for the Dutch climate movement to see like how, what can we do to be in solidarity for the loss and damages? Because we see that when St. Marta struggles back to Nederland, they immediately uh, face reper repercussions. Like uh, they made a complaint with the UN for being uh, racist, uh, treated um, race, Dutch racism of the Dutch state. And immediately the Dutch, um, uh, re revoke their co um, COVID uh, support. So we see uh, the colonial ties are very tight. Um, so closing on this, we've talked about uh, spatial justice, like racial uh, racial zoning and 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 um, um, uh, justice mobility. Uh, but I wanted to talk something about health and land concerns as well because it's not just about money, it's about health. So in Michigan, um, they paid up um, Flint uh, residents who have been poisoned, their water had been poisoned by politicians on racist capitalist scheme of poisoning pipelines of water uh, and lying about it. And we see like that money will vaporate very quickly. But what we don't see is reparations for lifelong healthcare <laughs> because they have heavy metal in their water. So that's never going away. And so I think we need to, to, to push the agenda for not just um, money, but like lifelong healthcare. And in the case of indigenous struggle, we see the land back movement. The most important reparation is actually getting the land back. <laughs> You're still on stolen land. Uh, so this goes for all of Apiayala, but also in many places uh, in, in Asia or in Africa. Um, so yeah, I'll end with that note, I think, and save some of the things for discussions. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Hiro. It was amazing uh, to see how much information you can provide us in such a short time. And I know you have killed your darlings and many darlings, I think, while pre pre preparing this presentation. And uh, also uh, I have heard a lot of like, this is already online, I'm not going into this, but this is what you need to know. So I'm sure that many people are really diving into the material afterwards. Um, but now I think it's uh, nice to open the, uh, the audience for having some questions and there are not so many questions uh, in the chat, but if people are willing to do so, please write it down and then maybe I can start with one like a uh, short question myself, uh, because I think that what you say about the indigenous, um, you know, movement for reparation, I think that this is like maybe the, the next step after decolonizing like uh, the world, uh, because then you, you need to know what you want. What do you want? Exactly what you said. Um, most of the people want to have land, but I spoke uh, the other day with my mother and I asked her, what do you want? What is your, your view, your conceptualization of decolonization? And she said exactly what you said, what you mentioned, I want compensation not for myself because I can heal. I can heal within myself. I can heal within my community. That's not a state thing. The thing I want to have is compensation. But then what I really like about your, like, like your list is uh, we always stop with uh, the punitive uh, justice or the compensation or like in money, to, in terms of money. But she mentioned we don't even have like, um, 
this this kind of Western capital, we don't use it. So we don't want money. Money isn't the thing. So why is it that many people always think about when we talk about like compensation or restoration, reparation, we always think about money. So is there anything you can say that maybe it's like in our mindset that it's not going to happen, that the shift in the mindset that we don't want to have money, we want to have different things like satisfaction, like, like other things. Um, is there any way you can say like, okay, this is really like, like the one thing why we stop with uh, um, enriching ourselves with this concept? Um, yeah, thank you for sharing and, and, and um, your question. I think there are multiple uh, layers to unpack that question. Very um, practical. I think people suffer generally from internalized capitalism. And <laughs> what that does is that it quantifies the world. And um, capital and money is not the same. Uh, capital is a particular kind of uh, money earned uh, without working and uh, investment cycles. But um, money is uh, a quantification. And we see that in our, in our language as well, um, we have eroded value to exchange value. And so with money, you are presumed to be able to exchange it for whatever. And that's not really the case. <laughs> um, you can't, you know, uh, exchange money for for health or or for love or for uh, land, for that matter. Um, if if you look at the indigenous way, uh, one of the ways that the U.S. wanted to get rid of the 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 Lakota Sioux um, was uh, through a monetary reparation. Um, but that's not really a reparation because they the land was never for sale, so they uh, rejected it. And there's like 1.3 billion sitting somewhere in a bank account that they are like, we're not taking your money because we never put this for sale. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a clash of values for sure, and I think also an erosion of imagination because this system wears us down in quantifications, like even in in, in, in environmentalism, we suffer from it so much to always talk about environmental protection in terms of quantification, like the disasters, the climate disasters cost so many 15 billion or something, or so much CO2 in the air, like that really means something uh, where the real pain or the real joy is is in, in, in other aspects of life that we are taught not to value as much so i'm not sure that's a yeah that's answer, really like yeah but I, it's a I really reflection <laughs> yeah but it's nice to have this kind of re reflection so i see that there are um two questions now first of all many compliments so that is that's on you um i see one question i would love to know if you could share some links about decolonization frameworks anti-racism framework that could be adapted to non-profit organizations. So that's really interesting. If you happen to have some. Yeah. So I'm, I'm inviting you, uh, Awa, to maybe if you would like to provide more like information about your question, maybe that is helpful for Chihiro maybe. So please do enter this conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm really blessed and happy to see back my uh, Shihiro, uh, that is a very awesome colleague of, of mine. We, <laughs> we had some struggles uh, in at Greenpeace and uh, I'm still in that stage in there. Uh, so yeah, um, I just wanted to, because you know, there is a lot um, to digest and there is a lot to, to do, uh, especially when you are in an environment a global environmental organization. So um, my, my take is this is a, a learning pathway, it's a learning journey. And we all have, um, um, you know, a, a role to play, uh, especially as, as part of the, um, that <laughs> uh, generations um, that really bear those trauma uh, from colonialism and so on. So I'm really happy to, 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 to see if they, they are 
you know, some frameworks that have been developed uh, by indigenous that we could get inspired from and obviously adapt to our context. Um, thank you for asking that question. Um, so I always advocate this book that I also had in the in the slide, the Decolonizing Wealth, also in Greenpeace, because it's so practical. You just have to do it. <laughs> like uh, the first half is really going through the pain of uh, being an Indigenous person within the, um, um, uh, what do you call it, the and 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 philanthropy sector, which is very much the same uh, trouble that uh, green NGOs have, like the saviorism. But we are the good guys. We're giving the money. How can we be colonial problem? So he really takes uh, a full circle through it, through experience, but then also breaking down how, as an organization, you can um, uh, go through steps. And I think this is really you know, um, the most practical book I encountered. Another thing I can recommend is the work of Eve Tuck. Uh, she wrote the very famous um, article with um, Yang and Tuck uh, on decolonization is not a metaphor. Um, and she has some talks I'm happy to share here in the chat or later after this talk. Also with how um, universities or NGOs have certain theories of change that are kind of colonial, like raising consciousness. <laughs> uh, and I found her work very interesting um, because it kind of operates from white innocence. Like if only everybody knows. <laughs> uh, well, as an uh, indigenous person, you know, people have known for a long time, but you need to deal with power. And so I will definitely recommend her work. Um, but then, of course, everything is different when you're hands on. So it's it's helpful to read other people's struggles, other people's insights. But we still have to do the the very difficult work in in whatever institution we're in. Okay, cool. Because I think I have maybe some also other insights. I've worked in many international NGOs. Uh, also, uh, like uh, racism was very much part of my work to deal with it, not only within, but also in relation with partners. So uh, let's let's um, uh, do that for let's save that for after the session or the Q and A afterwards. So I go now to Karen because she is also a very interesting. Uh, question and then you have Govert, Govert, and well, many questions you have. So you're actually inspiring a lot of people to think with us. So that's cool. So first start with Karen. Uh, she said she became very interested in uh, regenerative justice uh, because she hadn't really understood these terms before. So thank you much for explaining it. And uh, she will start reading for sure. But what you would like to know is your thoughts about whether we should only focus on regenerative justice from now on. Uh, does it still make sense uh, to have also punitive justice at the same time? Or does that affect the regenerative justice? So it's actually a very good question we all have, I think. So can, could it be coexist? Um, yeah. Um... <laughs> Thank you for asking that question. It's a question I struggle with as well. Mm -hmm. I still believe we need punitive justice, um, but there are also people who can just dedicate their life just on regenerative justice and not deal with the punitive justice. I mean, we all have different roles in the struggle. Um, mm -hmm. And so I know that, for example, Wangui Wakamonji, she really focuses um, exclusively on the restorative and regenerative practices. And that allows her to go deeper and be more uh, more wholesome in that. So I, I, I think we need more of that too. Um, but I still think we need many court cases to be won as well to really also change the legal um, infrastructure of our world. Because right now we still have corporate law, which uh, kind of jeopardizes all life on earth because under corporate law, we can scorch it. <laughs> um, so I do think that's a battle that needs to be won. And, and through that, uh, we still need punitive justice, even mm -hmm. though I hope that in the end, we can do away with prisons because I am uh, supporting uh, the abolition of the industrial pr prison complex. Um, 
but I do think that's a that's a process. And for now, I think we need to arrest Ben van Burden and other scum, uh, scummy uh, CEOs. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for this. I hope it it's really like resonates with uh, what you also were thinking, uh, Karen. So thank yeah, thank you so much. So I will do two more questions. And then I think we should go to your uh, presentation again. So one question I really like, uh, Govert, I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly, but Chihiro, um, you mentioned freeing patents, so such that technologies uh, can, become, can become accessible outside the West. So uh, he's questioning himself, what do we think of the danger that such technologies convey Western ideals of knowledge and technology overruling local ideals of knowledge and technology so and doing colonialism by other means so what do we think about the potential danger yeah um it's there <laughs> uh it's been there for 500 years because colonialism has criminalized other forms of knowledge production and not only indigenous knowledge production but also women knowledge production. Um, when we think about the witch burning, um, which is also a huge uh, scar in our history. Um, so I think, again, here we we are uh, all the time working, we're all the time working in tandem. We're working on dismantling and rebuilding at the same time. <laughs> mm. um, so part of um dismantling the patents is about also unbordering like having free access um doesn't mean that you want to uh adopt or use all the technology from the west um but you want to remove the the financial barriers and the the, the other barriers that are there um that's like a democratizing technology and then at the same time, we need a, a very strong revitalization of traditional ecological knowledge, but also um, different indigenous legal systems um, and, and rebuilding native nations. Um, and I say that without romanticizing native nations because there's a lot of uh, trouble and problems in there. And so they don't, just have ready-made solutions for everything. <laughs> They're dealing with a lot of their own um, troubles as well. But I think um, it's where we find um, a right entry point for healing, a right entry point for remembering, a right entry point for rekindling relations and with with other values and here I, I kind of go back to Chautileo's talk from last time of, of looking at just fundamental different values when it comes to land management or um, community building. Um, so this is still pretty mm. uh, generic, but those are some of my reflections. So interesting. Yeah, thanks, so, thanks a lot. Yeah, hopefully it uh, it, it resonates also with your ideas. Yeah, it does. Um, Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much for asking. Um, Kira, do you have one more time of uh, one of time for one more question? I'm looking at you uh, sure. because this is a very interesting one. Um, it's from Kargi. I'm hopefully I say it good. Um, it was uh, about your opinion of individual reparations. Uh, or what is your opinion? So, for example, some people in the US are advocating for wealthy people to distribute their wealth by giving it directly to indigenous and black peoples or groups, creating a hyper-local reparation program. So, uh, I understand that these systematic or systemic issues, uh, but what are the possibilities for individuals to repair or restore relationships? And there is like this link, um, but do we have any ideas about that? Mm. Thank you, Gargi, um, for that question. Um, individual reparations. I'm, I'm not sure if it always needs to be reparations uh, or if it 
really is reparations, but it's definitely restoring relations. Um, and it can definitely do good or heal, but you're dealing still with a huge power dynamic in that relation. Um, so I don't think there's a catch-all like good or bad for this practice. I think it can be done um, in a way that is helpful. It can also be done in a way that is reproducing <laughs> um, saviorism or, um, uh, so it really depends in like what way, um, in what way does that relationship um, transition? Reparation is also called transitional uh, justice sometimes. So like how much does transition take place? Um, and sometimes, you know, even if it's not transitional, it's still helpful. <laughs> it's good to have some resources <laughs> in the community. Uh, and sometimes it can also be very divisive because this community gets some and that community next door doesn't. And it actually creates more divisive colonial dynamics that we're also very familiar with. Um, I do think um, one more thought on this question. Um, this doesn't just, uh, uh, it's not just a case with individual reparations that we need to be very cautious, but also the way that the US kind of dominates the conversation on reparations mm -hmm. this moment. And Esther Sose was in a talk, not, uh, I think last month with um, uh, Kiata Younger Taylor and somebody else, I forgot his name, on reparations. And she repeatedly kind of reiterated uh, very strong points of like, don't forget that, you know, if the US gets their reparations, we're still being the biggest military imperial force in the world, that reparations might very well come out of the pockets of other, you know, uh, parts of the world, like Africa and um, other global south areas where this isn't about restoring black dignity but just us mm -hmm. uh, uh, afro-american dignity um and so she really cautions against divide and conquer or reproducing the same colonial harms also not just on the individual level but on the nation state level how the biggest imperial country in the world um can maybe afford to do reparations, but still get its um, its wealth through imperial trades and imperial warfare and appropriation. So I think, yeah, that's, um, I, I think Esther Sose has really strong um, uh, practice, but also insights into this internationalist solidarity movement building around legal reparations. Um, so definitely, if there's one thing you get from this talk is that you need to be here next time when Esther is here. <laughs> um, I'm so, just doing the groundwork. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's really good. Wow, I think it's also, um, when you put that in your historical perspective and we are ending now here with this kind of question, I think it's already like an achievement that we're trying to find out what the word means and how can we make sure that we understand the practices and we shed some highlights on some practices elsewhere in the world, but also about, I see now unlearning the learnings. I think we ourselves have a lot to do. Uh, so um, I think it's good for us maybe to have uh, to announce the break. So just to give an indication of how the second half will be shorter, because we're going a little over time, yeah. we will have a three minute exercise to imagine uh, reparations. Um, this can be a practice that you would like to see in a struggle that you're leading environmentally that could restore relationships, uh, power, um, be transitional. Um, it can be something really big for the world, like global passport for everyone, or it can be something very specific to your city, um, or like removing a certain dam and yeah, like the, the Yurok um, recently in the US. Um, so I, we're going to play a song 
And during this song, I invite you to just sit with yourself. If nothing comes up, that's fine too, but just put a pen to your paper and see whatever comes out. Maybe it's just feelings. Uh, maybe you come up with a beautiful vision for reparations and it will uh, inform your breakout room for like 10 minutes or so to speak with one or two other people from this session um, about what it comes up for you. So Chris, I will invite you to put on the music. Nosotras las mujeres, ese día nos sentimos muy contenta y tranquila y un corazón fuerte por verlos muchos de diferentes estaturas, colores como el maíz, que hay color amarillo, negro, blanco, pero todos somos una sola humanidad. un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra, en plena selva madre del sur, con luz de luna llena, emprende el viaje al amanecer, el caracol, sobre un rayo del día, no lo detiene la noche, ya ves, pasa y nadie lo mira. Una injusticia lo hará padecer, grita un silencio apuesta solo ver su mejor arma. Es un mar sobre su espalda, donde aguarda con valentía para iniciar al alma. Un caracol de guerra 